Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. This is the first episode of the Arms Control Poser podcast. And what I wanted to do here is tell you why we're doing this podcast, what it all means, and also what do we mean by arms control? Why do we care? And why at this particular moment in history are we paying attention to this topic? Why should you tune into these podcasts? Who am I? And where are we going from here? Let's start by defining our terms. When I say arms control, and keep in mind, I am the Director of Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control at the IISS. The reason I renamed this program from Nuclear Non-Proliferation to Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control is I was trying to mirror the great book by Tom Schelling and Morton Halpern, which is called Strategy and Arms Control. But of course, technology is such an important topic right now, we had to put that in there as well. It's got a nice little acronym, STAC, S-T-A-C. But I think arms control is commonly misunderstood, and people use the term mainly to focus on U.S.-Russian disarmament agreements, which are important and they're a part of arms control, but it's only a very small part of what is a much larger topic. So let's jump right into definitions. Let's define arms control. Any plan, treaty, or agreement to prevent conflicts and to limit the number, size, or type of weapons or forces. And arms control can cover any type of weapon, from conventional weapons to weapons of mass destruction. Arms control is scalable. You can cover individual soldiers or an entire armed force. It's also scalable in terms of the size and number of weapons, from bullet to an entire nuclear arsenal. And there are different types of agreements. There's legally or politically binding agreements. There's unilateral or multilateral agreements. And there's cooperative and non-cooperative agreements. And so for me, when we're talking about arms control, we're talking about risk reduction agreements, ceasefires, withdrawals, peace treaties, safeguards disarmament and non-proliferation, regulations on the use of weapons, outlawing entire systems, international humanitarian law, and the law of war. So arms control is coming from this really large definition to include those tools that you're using by either unilaterally declaring or working with one or more parties to try to limit the scope and size and ferocity of warfare, as well as to try to limit arms races. And it's a means to achieve security policy outcomes, just as much as a new deployment of a weapon system would be. But arms control can only really work if both sides share that interest to avoid unintentional conflict and ruinous arms races. Ultimately, there's no arms control agreement that can prevent a country from attacking you or from cheating or anything like that. Instead, if the two sides do share an interest, to avoid unintended conflict and to avoid ruinous arms races, then arms control can help. And there are typically several elements to arms control. Uh, This goes back to the definition from the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, 1983, the Madrid Mandate. It should include items of military significance at a scale of significance. It should include reciprocity, so it's binding to all parties. And it should have verifiability. And verifiability is very important. 
any arms control agreement that's worth its salt should detect militarily significant cheating. In other words, cheating on a scale that obviates the very purpose of the agreement. And so while I'd say that verification is a very important part of arms control, there are many different ways to verify an agreement. Now, as I mentioned, arms control in the broadest sense of the term, some arms control agreements in that broadest sense don't have any verifiability whatsoever. Some have very stringent, the highest level of verifiability is considered a combination of national technical means and on-site inspection. A national technical means, a very important term in arms control, goes by its initials NTM, National Technical Means. What that means is your spycraft that you use to look into what the other country is doing. Because ultimately, any topic for arms control should be militarily significant enough that you are devoting intelligence resources to looking at it. And if the agreement is reciprocal, again, your intelligence services will be looking at this particular military capability on the other side. So there are agreements that only rely on NTM for verifiability, but on-site inspection truly can help in terms of giving you higher confidence that an agreement is being complied with fully. Because ultimately what you really want to do is detect militarily significant cheating with the time enough to deny the other side the benefits of cheating on that treaty. To deny them that, you need time. And so again, your intelligence, your NTM, will be giving you indicators and warnings that the other side is doing something that is prohibited by the treaty. Let's say that you have an agreement meant to stop surprise attack in the center of the line of contact between you and another country. So obviously your indicators and warnings, your intel will be looking deeply at the kinds of movements and the kinds of concentrations of forces that worry you. Now then if you can enter into an agreement where the other side has to tell you 20 days before or 30 days before or 45 days before they create that kind of concentration of forces, then you're not surprised if suddenly there's a huge concentration of troops right in your center area. And this is what an agreement in the Euro-Atlantic area called the Vienna document does. You have to notify exercises of over a certain size, a certain number of days in advance. And that helps you alongside your NTM to prepare yourself in case the other side is going to launch a surprise attack because you can then go ahead and request an inspection to go look and see what's happening to make sure that what they've declared is, is actually occurring. If they're going to conduct a large scale exercise, you can request observation. In fact, it's an obligation that the other side, if they're having an exercise of more than 13,000 troops, has to invite observers from every one of the participating states in that agreement to send two military observers to see the exercise at its uh, largest point. If the other side denies you the ability to do that, says, no, you can't come and look at it, no, there's nothing to see here, then that should set off alarm bells in combination with your national technical means that tells you that something big is coming, plus their desire to not let you see what's happening under an agreement that they've signed, that should give you the indicators and warnings that you need that militarily significant cheating is occurring and that you need to move your forces rather quickly to deny the other side the opportunity to turn that supposed exercise into a surprise attack. But look, ultimately arms control is not magic. Any really good arms control agreement under the terms that I've discussed here should 
be able to detect signs of, say, an armed conflict that's coming, or at least to be able to tell you that non-compliance by the other party has risen to a level of extraordinary significance. Any really good arms control should also have some sort of forum to address potential violations of the agreement. Because when you see something that the other side is doing, and they're not notifying it, and they should notify it under an agreement, you should have some sort of forum that you can go to and present your evidence and request that the other side answer what is happening. Now, again, if they refuse to answer questions, if they tell you there's nothing to see here, if they try to gaslight you, then you know that you have to react. But Without that forum, it becomes very difficult. It just you know, ends up being press releases or tweets or whatever, and the other side just denies that it's happening. Now, that's not to say that a forum can prevent this, because again, arms control is not magic. If the other side wants to attack you, arms control cannot prevent it. Arms control, no matter what form it takes, cannot prevent intentional armed conflicts or wars. If one side decides to brush aside the terms of any agreement, to not comply with it, and to attack you, it's going to happen. Again, the best arms control will provide you with warning that something like that could be happening. And then you have to have the political will to carry through and either defend yourself, deny the other side the opportunity to attack, or a forum where you can actually resolve the issue and not have the attack occur at all. But all of this needs effective and comprehensive integration of intelligence and arms control into one cohesive set of indicators and warnings. So when people say, you know, this agreement is inherently unverifiable, you also have to guard against the idea that any agreement is 100% verifiable. No such thing. If you work in the intelligence world, you understand that basically what you're looking for is low confidence, medium conf confidence, or high confidence that something is happening. And arms control augments that. And again, can provide you with all kinds of political signals and military signals that something bad is happening. But proof positive is very, very difficult. If that arms control is helping your intelligence, if it's helping your indicators and warnings to give you a greater warning period or better evidence that the other side is cheating, or again, the political signal because they refuse to answer questions, then I would say that that's an effective arms control agreement. But even the best arms control agreement is still going to have violations, whether intentional or unintentional. It's how you choose to respond that counts. We're going to take a quick break back in just a second with the Arms Control Poser podcast. So why does this all matter? Why are we talking about this? Why now? Why this podcast? Well, first of all, the European Union Nonproliferation and Disarmament Consortium has commissioned this podcast in order to try to raise awareness of existing arms control disarmament and non-proliferation agreements, as well as the potential and past agreements, the roles that these agreements have played in security, in peace, in stability, and what the future might hold. And this matters now more than ever, because we are entering into a new era, a new era of risk, where I think Russia and China are both in a very dangerous place. Neither country appears to have any real interest in entering into arms control agreements. Russia, as a revisionist power, wants to change the international order, wants to tear up agreements. And quite frankly, I don't think Vladimir Putin himself believes in agreements that are of mutual benefit. I think he thinks 
zero-sum game is the way it goes. There's always a winner and a loser, and he doesn't want to be the loser. Quite frankly, I think he learned a lot from the George W. Bush administration. There were plenty of folks in that administration who hated arms control and wanted out. That's why the U.S. withdrew from the ABM Treaty in 2002. I think Putin's doing the same thing. I think he just, is, it's fallen out of fashion. So one of my Russian colleagues told me, the U.S. and Russia always agree on arms control, but never at the same time. So we do have a Russia right now with revisionist aims, dissatisfaction with the post-Cold War order, and a desire to change everything through the use of threats and use of force against its neighbors, against countries, especially in what it considers its near abroad. I think Putin himself believes that risk is a force enabler. He wants to hold things at risk in order to see if the other side will capitulate or give him concessions. And so in this context, arms control is very difficult because, as I mentioned earlier, arms control is most effective when the two sides have a shared interest in cooperative security outcomes, in outcomes that suit both sides. But that's not, I believe, where Putin is. And so he's using risk and coercion. He's trying to optimize arms control agreements to derive political outcomes not connected to the actual purpose of those agreements. And quite frankly, he appears not to at all be worried about arms racing. And you'd have to say China shares some of those views because we have a China now that appears to be in the middle of a massive military buildup, their conventional forces, their nuclear forces, their missiles, as we've seen from open source intelligence, tremendous amount of information about their new ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. SLBMs, sub-launch ballistic missiles, medium-range dual-capable missiles, that is conventional and nuclear-capable missiles, and the rapid buildup of plutonium under the guise of a civilian nuclear fuel cycle that will be able to provide enough plutonium for hundreds and hundreds of warheads. And now the question is, how high will China go? Is China building up to try to match the level of the US and Russia's strategic offensive arms? The level of warheads countable under the New START Treaty is 1,550 for each side. Is China trying to build up to there? Is it somewhere short of there? There have been estimates out there that they're building up to 1,250. And how will the United States react to that? If Russia and China have similarly large strategic forces, will the US decide that it has to be Russia plus China plus one? Or is it okay that it's the larger of the two plus one? That's an open question. The U.S. Secretary of State has said that they do not see a need to arms race, but I think that's something in the future we'll see. There have certainly been many times in history when the pressure on a U.S. administration to build up in light of perceived shortcomings in the U.S. arsenal compared to the Soviets happened again and again, whether it was the bomber gap or the missile gap, and whether those gaps existed or not, which... If you look back through the history, they really didn't. But that perception of weakness was the problem. And then how will the US allies feel? Will Japan or South Korea, will the NATO allies, will Australia, will all those countries be sanguine about an equivalency between the US and China and Russia? Or will they feel that there needs to be some sort of change here? It's a big question. And that's why arms control matters more than ever now. We have a China that is willing to take tremendous risks in terms of incidents on and over the high seas, in the Pacific, in the South China Sea, any area that it wants to claim as its own, it's willing to weaponize risk 
to try to force the other side away, to try to induce the other side to give things up, to induce inhibition in the other side, which is exactly what Russia is doing. In that context, it appears that China also does not have an interest right now in arms control until they believe, until President Xi himself believes that risk is something to be avoided, not operationalized, until President Xi believes that arms control limits and transparency on China makes sense. I don't think we're going to see any new big arms control agreements in the style of the bilateral US-Russia, US-Soviet Union agreements. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other agreements, other pathways that we can use to try to limit risk, whether it's voluntary rules and norms, like what the UN Opened Working Group on Outer Space is trying to pursue. We've also seen efforts in cyberspace to pursue this. Standards such as what's being negotiated in Geneva on lethal autonomous systems or the use of artificial intelligence. There are other ways to get to more stable outcomes than a bilateral old school arms control agreement with inspectors and declared numbers and all of that. There's also a huge need for risk reduction. As I mentioned, it's hard to enter into a risk reduction agreement with a country that is trying to operationalize risk. You can imagine telling a bully, don't do this, or I'm likely to give you all my milk money. Of course, the bully is going to do the thing and get your money. But at the same time, you can propose what you believe are the good standards, the good rules, the good behaviors, and then challenge the other side to comply. And so this is something that's important in the U.S.-Russian relationship. There still remains the ballistic missile launch agreement of 1988, the agreement on the exchange of large-scale nuclear strategic exercises from 1989, and the avoidance of hazardous incidents on and over the high seas agreement between the U.S. and Russia, originally signed in 1972 between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. More than 15 countries have such agreements with Russia. Uh, it's telling that countries tend to need that with Russia. But there need to be more of these types of agreements not with the belief that this is suddenly going to solve things or make one side behave fundamentally differently or not pursue its own interests. But as long as we have some kind of rules, then we can at least understand what's happening, the difference between an accident and a deliberate behavior. I think that's one of the great strengths of INCSEs, avoidance of hazardous incidents on and over the high seas. It's like having a speed limit. You know people are going to speed, but if you don't have a rule to hold people to, then just anyone can go any speed they want and accidents will happen. So now I think more than ever, while we're watching Russia tear up arms control, while we're watching China build up its nuclear forces, while you're watching Russia use irresponsible nuclear threats against Ukraine, against European countries, constant bullying of its neighbors, whether it's flying into the airspace of Finland or Estonia, whether it's trying to intimidate Denmark or Sweden, whether it's trying to overfly Japanese islands or South Korean islands, we need to have some sort of guardrails because the chance of conflict is just too high. At the same time, we can't give up territory. We can't give up what we know to be our own rights just because Russia or China or Iran or North Korea might do something we don't like. We can't see arms control as what can we give up in order to make the other side happy. That rarely works. What we should be doing is thinking, how do we defend ourselves? How do we deter our adversaries? And on that basis of strength, then how do we enter into talks to try to manage the conflict 
and make sure that it doesn't go wrong. Make sure that we avoid unintentional conflicts. Make sure we avoid unaffordable arms races. This will be the challenge for the coming years. And in the meantime, this podcast will continue to look at situations around the world, try to discuss what the existing agreements that are trying to manage this issue, this crisis, this weapon system, this behavior, how it's going. Is there an existing agreement? Is there a proposed agreement? Is there a way to strengthen the existing structures? Should we just move away from those structures onto something else? We'll be looking at things like missile proliferation, the proliferation of nuclear materials, nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons. I want to share a better understanding of what these agreements can and cannot do, what they should do, and what the way forward is in trying to make the world a safer place to survive what looks to be a prolonged period of contestation among great powers, with countries having to choose which side, everyone just wanting their own population to be safe, but different means of going about that, and managing a Russia that is, for the foreseeable future, going to continue to be a very difficult country to deal with, a country with murderous intent towards Ukraine, and a real desire to not be bound by any rules. How do you manage a country like Russia? How do you manage potential conflicts in Asia, East Asia, South Asia? What can we learn from India and Pakistan? Are there lessons from the past in arms control? We're going to try to figure it out. So I hope you stay with me throughout this series. We're going to bring on some really great speakers. So thank you. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Tune in next time. I'm William Alberg. That's all we have time for today. My thanks once again to the European Union Nonproliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding this podcast. And my special thanks to the Aubrey Friedman, who composed all of our lovely music. I'll drop a link to his band camp in the notes if you want to listen more. Until next time, I'm William Alberg. Thank you for dropping by.